You're listening to Word on Health, the report with its finger on the pulse of popular medicine with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, for your very best of health. One in every 600 children in the UK is born with a cleft lip and or palate. Cleft means split or separation. During early pregnancy, separate areas of the face develop individually and then join together. If some parts don't join properly, the result is a cleft, the type and severity of which can vary. As Rosanna Preston from Clapper, the only UK voluntary organisation specifically helping those with and affected by cleft lip and palate, explains. Cleft lip and cleft palate are actually two different things. You might have one or the other or both. The most common likelihood is that a child will have a cleft palate only. That will affect their ability to speak and to feed. The severity could be anything from very small notch to the whole of the palate separated. The same with a cleft lip. You can either have a cleft lip on one side of the nose or on both sides of the nose. And sometimes the cleft goes right through from the lip to the gums and the palate. Do we know what causes cleft lip and or palates and can they be prevented? Essentially there's no specific cause and quite frequently when the child is diagnosed with a cleft lip parents worry that it's something that they did but in fact it isn't anything specific that they've done. Talk us through the treatment options. There's a whole 20 year programme in fact of treatment and nowadays there are specialist teams around the country who just work with cleft lip and palates so they're very expert at caring for babies. The very first operation you will have at three months if you have a cleft lip, that gets repaired, and then the cleft palate will be repaired at around six months. Then as the baby gets older and grows up, there may be an operation at around 10 to 12 years to make sure the teeth come through properly. And then later on, there may be more operations to make sure that the bite is working properly and that the face looks balanced. If you've got a cleft palate, then there's more likely to be associated problems with something called glue ear, which is temporary deafness. So as the child is growing up, around six to eight maybe, they will start to get this problem with their hearing and that might affect their speech a little. They may also have problems with speech because of air escaping through the roof of the mouth and down the nose. And those are all things that can be looked after by the specialist cleft team. What about adults? Because services have changed quite dramatically in the last 10 years or so, in fact, a lot of those adults will not have had the same level of service that babies get nowadays. And they might be a bit unhappy with their appearance. They might want some more help with their speech. They can come back to the specialist cleft teams and ask to be seen again. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. The number of people living with depression across the UK is on the increase and there's been a dramatic rise in the amount of prescriptions for antidepressants and numbers of people gaining access to what's termed talking treatments. Despite the increased prevalence, a recent poll has suggested that just over half of the UK are unclear about the difference between a bout of the blues and clinical depression that requires medical intervention. To get an authoritative definition, I recruited the aid of Dr Tim Cantover, a consultant psychiatrist. Clinical depressive illnesses specific chemical condition that happens when a set of structures in the brain fails usually because of too much stress though there are other causes as well hormonal conditions some drugs some medications too much alcohol viral illnesses but whatever the cause what happens is that a chemical change happens in the brain that leads to a set of symptoms so dr canterver talk us through these symptoms you tend to feel worse first thing in the morning and better as the day goes on you get change in sleep pattern either reduced or increased sleep and the same with appetite, either up or down. Loss of energy, enthusiasm, concentration, memory, confidence, self-esteem, sex drive, drive, enjoyment, patience 
feelings, optimism, and if you've got a full set of those, you've got clinical depression. Thankfully, GPs are better at diagnosing depression now, and there's greater access to all forms of treatment, including counselling and cognitive behavioural therapy. But as Laura Gibson from the Mental Health Foundation reminds us, there are things we can all do to maintain good mental health. Exercise releases uplifting chemicals into our bodies that makes us feel good. We can eat well. A balanced diet is absolutely essential to maintaining good mental health. It's also important to drink sensibly. Alcohol is a natural depressant. Keep in touch with friends and family because friends and family take an interest in who we are, what we're doing and how we're feeling. The real big important one is to talk and open up about how we're feeling. Putting you in the picture, this is Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Throughout the years, the damage we do walking on hard surfaces and wearing the wrong shoes for too long can impact on our ability to enjoy life, as Lorraine Jones from the Society of State Registered Chiropodists and Podiatrists explains. If you have an area in your foot that hurts, you alter the way you walk to accommodate the pain, which puts pressure and stresses on other joints like the knees and the hips and the back. You become less mobile, so you lose a degree of your independence because you have to become dependent on other people to do things for you. Lorraine, research shows that the majority of adult foot problems begin in childhood with studies suggesting that around 90% of children have problems with their shoes and feet so what approach should parents adopt? Children before they're walking don't need any footwear. Their limbs need to be unrestricted so that their muscles can develop normally. If their feet are cold, nice loose little socks or of course the all-in-one outfits are quite good. Only put them in footwear when they are walking outside unless of course the child has systemic problems like diabetes or health issues. So if the child's fit and healthy, don't stick shoes on them. They don't need it. The body develops beautifully without them. And the other thing is, when you do start buying shoes for the child, have them fitted by a trained fitter. Or get some advice, because not every shoe shop where children's shoes are sold will fit them properly. The other thing is, a lot of the assistants in shoe shops haven't had proper training, particularly, you know, Saturday staff and part-time staff. And keep checking their shoes, because children grow in quite interesting spurts. So the shoes may fit for a little while and then all of a sudden they don't. Okay, so that's the kids covered, but what tips can you pass on to adults to lessen the burden on their feet? Never wear the same shoes for more than one day in a row because they don't dry out overnight. Wash the feet every day, cream them, but not in between the toes. If you get a little bit sweaty, surgical spirit in between the toes or use the underarm antiperspirant deodorant sprays to help reduce sweating and always make sure that you wear the right shoe for the job because if you do that, you'll allow the maximum ability for the foot to work as an effective a way as possible because if you have the wrong shoe for the job something that slip on a tight toe box it doesn't allow the foot to work properly this is word on health with paul pennington Vascular disease is the collective term for diseases of the veins and arteries, every part of the body to which blood flows can be affected by it. It's as common as cancer and heart disease and accounts for 40% of deaths in the UK, many of which are preventable. Rachel Bell is a consultant vascular surgeon and Guy's and St Thomas's Director of Vascular Network. She's also chair of the Circulation Foundation. Rachel, welcome to Word on Health. As I mentioned, vascular disease is a collective term. What are the most common vascular diseases that you and your colleagues treat? The commonest condition we see is people who don't have enough blood that goes to their legs. They often present initially with pain when they walk. When the disease is more severe, they get pains in their feet just sitting in a chair. And we call that peripheral vascular disease. And normally it requires treatment in some form to improve the blood supply because otherwise you're at risk of losing your leg. 
Another condition that we treat very frequently is where instead of the arteries getting narrowed and blocked, they get bigger and more dilated than they should be, and we call that aneurysms. And we see that quite commonly in the main blood vessel in the tummy, which is called the aorta. Aneurysms harm you in a different way. They get bigger slowly over time and behave a lot like balloons do. So the bigger they get, the more likely they are to go pop. And if they do that, then you become very seriously or very quickly and have a very high chance of dying. So I would say that those are the two main arterial conditions outside of heart disease and stroke that we treat. Where are we at in terms of our understanding of vascular disease and treating the various forms? We already have learned a lot from vascular research over the years and lots of the really good studies that have taught us about how we manage patients who have stroke associated with narrowings in their carotid arteries were all designed and run by vascular surgeons who were desperate to know the answers to the question of when should you operate on somebody who's had a stroke to clear out a carotid artery and when shouldn't you and so we have a pedigree of doing quite good clinical research to try and answer those tricky questions. There are active research programs around the country. Vascular research is probably divided into two main parts. So there's the sort of basic science research, which is looking very much on a cellular level, looking at things we can do there. But then there are also sort of more translational research programs, which is clinical exercise imaging based, where we can find more out about the condition and therefore design more treatments. As surgeons, we often neglect the medical side, so the tablet treatments that we can do to improve people's health, which are very much along the lines of the antiplatelet drugs and the antihypertensive drugs, which are very protective against uh, progression of arterial disease, and also then the statins, which I know are quite controversial, but we, as vascular surgeons, we can definitely see the benefits of statins. But then there are also new treatments and new technologies such as stent grafts and implantable devices that we can use to treat people's vascular disease in a minimally invasive way so they don't need a big operation. And lots of the current research is in that sort of technology field. And so there are lots of very exciting things going on. In my introduction, I highlighted the prevalence of vascular disease and that many deaths are preventable. What are the risk factors and what can we all do to help ourselves? Inevitably, the older you get, the higher the risk. You can modify your own risk factors by not smoking, making sure that you take care of your blood pressure and cholesterol, keeping your weight down and avoiding getting diabetes, walking regularly. Exercise is really important. It's good for all of your blood vessels, but it's also good for your cardiovascular health in general. The only thing you can't really manage is your family history because some of us inherit bad family genes that make us more prone to vascular arterial disease but many of the other factors are manageable and therefore can reduce your risk and potentially prevent yourself from getting it. And finally, Rachel, September is Vascular Disease Awareness Month, an initiative that the Circulation Foundation leads. What's the focus? We're keen to become really accessible to our patients and to be able to provide them with the necessary support for their vascular disease. We're launching something called the Body Walk. If you join every part of the body's circulation together, every artery, every vein, every capillary, unbelievably, it makes up 60,000 miles in every adult human and so we're planning on 
walking the body. Much of our fundraising comes from events like the London Marathon, Ride London, where many of my colleagues very kindly get dressed up in lycra and run or cycle for many miles for sponsorship. But coronavirus, unfortunately, has stopped pretty much all of those activities this year. It was one of the reasons we came up with the idea of the body walk, because it means that people can do their exercise in their family or social bubbles and hopefully raise some money without having to enter a big public event. Word on Health. On air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health. Your personal prescription for your very best of health.